Murder in the North, Episode 16, Tell Her Parents. A missing child inevitably arouses feelings of helplessness and despair, especially among those closest to the boy or girl, the parents, family, friends. But it can also have a profound impact on police officers, detectives, journalists and judges. Everybody involved is in shock, hoping for a favourable outcome. In 1989, 10-year-old Helene goes missing. Her family, the investigative team and the rest of Sweden have to endure a 15-year wait for answers to their questions. Who harmed Helene and why? You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Jana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. Herbu is a small and normally sleepy little town in the centre of the Swedish province of Skåne. In the late 80s, it's home to around 6,000 people, among them, the Nielsen family. The 20th of March is Myvi and Bengt Nielsen's wedding anniversary. They celebrate it every year, and 1989 is no exception. This year, the date also happens to coincide with the first day of the Easter holiday. In the evening, they have dinner at home with their children, 14-year-old Christina, 10-year-old Helene, and their adult son, Dan. After dinner, Helene is allowed to go outside for an hour or so to see her friends. They've agreed to meet in the town centre, a few hundred metres away. But 15 minutes later, the friends turn up on the Nielsen's doorstep, wanting to know where Helene is. She didn't show up at the meeting point. After about three hours, the family call the police. The route that Helene must have taken is reconstructed. She bumped into some of her older sister's friends on the bridge over the river Herbian. After that, she continued in the direction of the town centre. Herbu is only a small town, and news of her disappearance spreads like wildfire. Cab drivers, the fire brigade, and the police all drive around looking for Helene, Local residents join them. Public places are searched, as are basements, warehouses and sheds. Later that same evening, the ten-year-old girl's disappearance is announced on local radio. Her description is as follows. One metre and thirty-five centimetres, dark blonde hair, 
last seen wearing a pink jacket with green stitching, light blue jeans, and a white headband with two pom-poms. When a child goes missing, every minute counts. It's essential to act fast. With each passing day, it's less likely that the child will be found alive. That's why lots of volunteers come forward to help with the search. When there's still no sign of Helene the next day, a huge rescue operation is launched, with the army, reservists and the fire brigade all taking part. Police dogs and helicopters with thermal imaging cameras are deployed as well. But despite the large-scale search operation, there's still no trace of Helene. The Nielsens are growing increasingly worried. On the 26th of March, six days after Helene's disappearance, the emergency services receive a phone call. Two women had been walking towards the woods northeast of town to pick some anemones on this beautiful spring day. As they did so, a Volvo drove past them, and when they reached the woods a little later, they spotted a large plastic bag. When they had a closer look, they saw a child's knee sticking out of the two rubbish bags taped together. The bags are found to contain Helene's remains. The autopsy reveals that the girl was sexually abused before she died from repeated blows to the head. The perpetrator cleaned the body, but the coroner manages to secure a small quantity of sperm. Even though DNA profiling is still in its early stages, the sample is dispatched to the laboratory. The autopsy also reveals that Helene must have been alive for a few days after her disappearance, but that she didn't have anything to eat or drink during this time. Forensic pathologists find both dog and cat hair inside the plastic bags. In the psychological profile commissioned by the police, the perpetrator is described as somebody who's familiar with the city and the surrounding area. The person in question is also thought to be a repeat offender, someone who has sexually abused children or young people before, or is likely to do so again in the future. The town turns out in force for Helene's funeral. The question on everybody's lips, who could the perpetrator be? Four months later, on the 4th of August, 1989, a pensioner parks his car near the town of Venema, some 50 kilometers north of Herbu. He drives there first thing in the morning to go deer spotting at sunrise. What he discovers instead is the body of a young woman lying right next to the car park in a heap of rubbish. He immediately dials the emergency services. It's not long before the victim is identified. She's 26-year-old Yannicka Ekblatt, a young drug addict who worked as a prostitute in Malmo. 
She'd only been reported missing the previous day, which explains why no search had got underway yet. After all, she's an adult. Yannicka has been sexually assaulted. There are signs that the perpetrator tried to strangle her, but in the end, she died from blunt force to the head. Although Helene was found under more or less identical circumstances barely four months earlier, the police don't immediately connect the two cases. It's quite rare for sex offenders to select such very different victims. It's not until the post-mortem examination finds dog and cat hair on Yannicka's body that the police believe the two sex crimes may be linked. The forensics experts also detect small traces of sperm on the woman's body. Despite the many similarities, the two cases continue to be investigated separately. But then, the local police receive a peculiar letter with the following message. The murders of Helene and Yannicka? Why? Revenge. I'm so damn lonely, and the women at work make fun of me. The letter is handwritten and could be from the offender, the police say. It's postmarked Christianstadt. Two years pass without any significant progress. In April 1992, the chief of the investigative team, Police Commissioner Alf Anderson, is a guest on a radio show about unsolved cases. He talks about the murders of Helene and Yannicka, among others. Later that day, he receives a phone call at home. An unknown man claims to have sent the police that cryptic letter back in September 1989. In the background, Alf Anderson hears sounds that suggest that the caller is at a train station... The man has detailed information about the murders, including the time of Helene's death and the exact location where Yannicka's body was dumped. He also has a message for Helene's parents. I didn't target Helene. I came across her by chance. Tell her parents. That evening, the police commissioner receives a further four phone calls from the man who now tells him how he carried out the murders. He says he used a steel pipe to batter the victims and a nylon cord to strangle them. In the course of the conversations, the police commissioner works out from the background noises that the man must be calling him from the train station in Malmo. Between two calls, Alf Anderson contacts his colleagues in Malmo and tells them to send a patrol car to the station. But the man is nowhere to be found. In the course of the conversations, the caller mentions details that were never made public, so the police can safely assume that this is the perpetrator. But he seems to have said everything he wanted to say that evening, and doesn't phone Commissioner Alf Anderson again. The investigation hits a dead end. Another four years pass. In 1995, patience with the local police has run out 
and the cases are handed over to the second biggest investigative team in Malmo. It's now been six years since the murders. The renewed investigation is led by Detective Paraka Akerson. He and his highly skilled team have a track record of solving sex crimes and tracking down sex offenders, including a high-profile case of a serial sex offender in the 1980s. In the years since the murders, DNA technology has developed in leaps and bounds. So naturally, Ackerson starts by having the forensic samples analyzed with the hope of obtaining a DNA profile of the perpetrator. But he's told that unfortunately, there's not enough material available for testing. The samples are both too small. In the absence of forensic evidence, Ackerson decides to focus on the many tips that came in at the time. Among the thousands and thousands of tips is one from a father whose daughter was threatened with a knife by someone in Herbu many years before the 1989 murders. This man attacked his daughter and tried to rape her, but luckily she got away. The local police never followed up on this tip, but the new team is planning to correct this oversight. It turns out that the girl was harassed by this young man on two occasions. Her father didn't go to the police because the assailant was still very young and instead spoke to the parents. But when Helene was found dead, he reported it after all. By then... The young man was a 20-year-old adult and doing his military service. During the Easter holidays in 1989, when Helene was abducted, he was briefly on leave. Multiple witnesses located him and his cousin near the place where the girl disappeared. The two men are now questioned multiple times and found to give contradictory statements and one of them is discovered to have a previous conviction for sexual assault. The arrest of the two men receives widespread media coverage. Finally, a breakthrough. At first glance, there's no doubt that the two cousins are guilty, but it's the media attention that gives the case a new twist. It's not long before the local police commissioner, Alf Anderson, receives yet another anonymous phone call from the man who called him in 1992. Again, the caller mentions details that only the perpetrator can know. The two men are released. The police don't have enough evidence to actually charge them. But neither the lack of evidence nor the mysterious phone calls stop the investigative team from continuing to build on the theory that the two cousins are guilty. In 2002, 13 years after the murders, one of the investigators on the case is invited to dinner with his neighbours. One of them used to work in a factory near Herbu, where he had a colleague with the nickname Ufa Pervers, Ulf the Pervert. He was called this because he used to brag about having had sex with an eight-year-old girl. The neighbour is surprised that Ulf Olsen, which is his actual name, 
was never considered a suspect in Helene's case. In fact, he was never even questioned. The investigator jots down the name and adds it to the list of potential suspects. At this stage, the focus of the investigation is still on the two cousins, but perhaps the list can force a breakthrough. Then, out of the blue, there's a piece of good news. A semen sample that was thought to have been lost has been discovered at the University of Uppsala. It turns out that the sample that was analysed in 1989 was handed over to the laboratory there. The remaining material has been frozen. DNA analysis is now far more reliable than it was in the early 1990s. New methods are available, including one for copying DNA, which makes it possible to successfully test microscopically small quantities of material. At the time, the UK is one of the forerunners when it comes to DNA profiling techniques. And in August 2003, a British lab manages to analyse the sample and produce a DNA profile of the perpetrator. The analysis clearly shows that the perpetrator's DNA doesn't match that of the two cousins. The allegations against the men are withdrawn and the investigation is back to square one. The list of potential suspects now contains 29 names. All the men are contacted, invited to attend an interview and asked to volunteer a DNA sample. By June 2004, the police have worked their way through most of the list. There's only one person to go now, number 29, and that's Ulf Olsen, the man whose name was suggested by one of the investigator's neighbours. Ulf lives in Vimmerby and is addicted to alcohol and drugs. Detectives ask him to come to the police station for questioning, and he agrees to give a DNA sample. He's cooperative and very calm when he submits to a mouth swab. A few weeks later, on the 23rd of June, Paraka Akerson finally receives the phone call that he and his colleagues have been waiting for all these years. The Swedish National Forensic Centre confirms that Ulf Olsen's DNA matches the DNA found on Helene's body. A police unit is dispatched to detain Ulf Olsen. The officers find him in his house in Vimmerby and arrest him on suspicion of the abduction, rape and murder of Helene Nielsen. Forensic specialists comb through his house in search of evidence. Ulf is remanded in custody and charged with Helene's murder. Ulf's questioning now begins, but he denies any involvement in the case. Ulf is 53 at this point. He was born and raised in the small town of Hur, a few kilometres from Herbu, where he moved with his family when he was very young. He and his three brothers and sisters had a very difficult childhood and suffered physical and mental abuse, especially at the hands of their mother. As a young man, he's conscripted into the Navy 
and spends many years out at sea and traveling all over the world. That's how he ends up in Brazil, where he sexually abuses an eight-year-old girl, which becomes the subject of one of his work stories years later. Ulf describes the abuse as one of his best sexual experiences ever. At the age of 25, he returns to Sweden and starts training to be a mechanic. While on the course, he meets a 16-year-old girl and the two start a relationship. They marry when she turns 18, but the marriage is short-lived. He then meets another woman on the shop floor of the factory in Hur where he works. He marries his colleague, and not long after, they have a son. Ulf has problems with drugs and alcohol, and seems mentally unstable as well. Nowhere is this more evident than in his behavior towards the family pets. The dog and cat both lose a lot of hair, and this infuriates Ulf. He ends up killing the cat, and then orders his wife to get rid of the body. A few days later, he also butchers the dog. The incidents with the pets are the final straw for the wife, and she files for divorce. She's granted sole custody of their son. Ulf now only gets to see his son with another adult present. He's furious, and his anger increases. So does his intake of alcohol and drugs. While detectives comb through Ulf's past, forensic specialists head to his summer house in Bukersland. Here they find traces of what looks like dried blood. They take samples and discover that it's Janneke's blood. She must have lost so much that it seeped into a crack between the doorway and the floor. No traces of Helene are found in the summer house. Ulf is now charged with murdering both Helene and Janneke. It later emerges that Janneke and a female friend visited Ulf's summer house in Bukersland in the summer of 1989 because they'd been booked as prostitutes. This friend identifies Ulf as one of the men who were present that evening. She also reveals that Ulf had a bad reputation among prostitutes and was known as a dangerous client. But that didn't stop the women from going. In fact, at a later date, Janneke drives to the summer house on her own. Whether Ulf murdered her on that particular occasion, nobody knows. As they continue their investigation, the police find further evidence to corroborate Ulf's guilt. For instance, bank statements allow them to deduce that Ulf was at the station in Malmo when Police Commissioner Alf Anderson received those mysterious phone calls. In November 2004, five months after his arrest, Ulf Olsen is brought before the court of Lund, charged with murder, abduction and rape. He still denies any involvement in the two cases, but in light of the overwhelming evidence, he's sentenced to life imprisonment. He appeals, and his case is heard again a year later in 2005, this time before the courts in Skona and Blekinger. He's also found guilty on appeal, 
but this time, instead of life imprisonment, he's sentenced to psychiatric treatment in a secure unit. He spends a total of five years in an institution in Sundsvall and tells anybody who'll listen that he's innocent. He writes a book and posts blogs in which he talks about how bad he thinks the legal system is. On the 10th of January 2010, Ulf Olsen takes his own life. He hangs himself in his room and leaves a long letter in which he claims to have been wrongfully convicted. From Podomo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podomo UK on Apple Podcasts.